2011-11-11. State of Texas et al. versus the United States et al. versus the State of California et al. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Sam Siegel on behalf of the State Defendants. I'll be sharing my time with Mr. Letter from the House of Representatives, including dividing our rebuttal time, except that Mr. Letter will be going first on rebuttal and I'll be going last. To start with the issues raised in the Court's supplemental briefing order, we think that the State Defendants are clearly injured by the judgment below and therefore have standing to appeal it. You might want to move the microphone or something. You're not... Is this better, Your Honor? I think so, or just... I'll speak louder, Your Honor. Louder. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. But after the supplemental briefing, it is also now clear that all parties agree that this Court has appellate jurisdiction under Windsor. And that's because the federal government has now committed to continue enforcing the Affordable Care Act until a court finally orders it not to do so. The federal executive suffers legal harm from the court's below's order, even though they now welcome it, and the participation of the states and House of Representatives ensures that there will be an adversarial presentation of the issues in this case. Turning to the other issues in this case, the central feature of this appeal is that when Congress... In maintaining your standing, the intervener's states, are you necessarily conceding the standing of the plaintiff's states? No, Your Honor, we're not. So you're here in New Orleans in the Fifth Circuit telling us that the state of Texas doesn't have standing to litigate here. Explain that. Yes, Your Honor. What is the distinction that you see that licenses you with standing here but not the plaintiff's states? The judgment below, if it were ever to take effect, would cost the defendant's states hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funds. The state plaintiffs rely on a theory of standing that they have not proved up. They argue that the individual mandate, even though it has been stripped of its alternative tax penalty, is going to cause people to enroll in their Medicaid and CHIP programs, but they haven't produced any evidence to support that suggestion. That makes this case very similar to this court's decision in Crane v. Johnson, where it held that Mississippi didn't have standing to challenge the DACA directive because it hadn't shown that there were DACA recipients in... But don't they also cite to the CBO report that talks about the expenditures that they can reasonably expect to incur? They do cite to the CBO report, Your Honor. That report concludes only that there are some small number of people who, even once the alternative tax has been zeroed out, will maintain health care coverage. So they only have a little standing? No, Your Honor. They have not proved the final link in their causal chain, which is to show that there are individuals like that in their states who are enrolling in their Medicaid and CHIP programs. It's that link that they haven't proved up. And to go back to this court's decision in Crane, I think the record here is very similar to the one that this court held that Mississippi didn't have standing to challenge the DACA directive. And I might note that that case came to this court on a 12B1 motion to dismiss. We are here on summary judgment. The state plaintiff's burden was higher here, and yet I think the records are very similar. Well, actually, in that case, didn't Judge Owen write in her concurrence that Mississippi hadn't even really urged its proper standing? 
uh, and then in a, it would be a different case and might be more similar um, to one of the U.S. Supreme Court cases if Mississippi had urged its standing because um, sometimes things that haven't yet occurred can still give rise to standing. That may be the case, Your Honor, but I think they have the burden of coming forward and identifying and showing that there's some evidence that we can believe that people, because of a penalty-less mandate, are going to enroll in their Medicaid and, and programs. Well, we do need to get back to your standing, but your client's standing, but before we do, could, could I ask a little bit about the record? Because you said the record was very similar in that case. Um, I just want to make sure, in, in the Crane case to this case, yes. I want to make sure that I understand what the, what, what y'all are calling the summary judgment record is. Uh, I have this Exhibit A, which are all the declarations from all the states as well as the individuals and then various people who work at the states, say, making certain declarations. This is in the evidentiary record for summary judgment, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Was there ever any uh, motion to strike or to uh, say that some of these are conclusory or anything of the sort that would have evidentially quibbled with Exhibit A? Not the, that I'm aware of, Your Honor. In fact, your client did not argue in the district court that there was a lack of standing, correct? We did make that argument at oral at an oral argument, um, and it was also addressed by the district court, of course. But just just in passing an oral argument, it was never pleaded or put We forth. did not, in, in, our, in our response to the motion for preliminary judgment, we did not raise the standing issue. We also did ask the court to allow us to argue this and explore this further when it said it was considering entering summary judgment, and we argued it at the, the hearing, Your Honor. Okay, so if, in fact, as you argue, the record were insufficient to support the standing or that would be because there's a, that this alone is not enough, or because there's some contrary summary judgment evidence, but there is no contrary summary judgment evidence, is there? And to be clear, our position is that it is not enough. Okay, so if there was a fact, you're not saying there's a fact issue on the question. That is correct, Your Honor. So we don't need to remand for a fact, for a determined trial on the standing issue, or. That's correct, Your Honor. In our view, the evidence that they have produced is not enough to demonstrate that there are people enrolling in their Medicaid or CHIP programs because of a zeroed-out individual mandate in its okay. current form. Can we talk about your client standing just a bit more? Yes, Your Honor. Um, you, you, you believe you have standing because of the judgment that might take effect, but if a declaratory judgment that we're here on would take effect, how would that impact your client? That's not an injunction. It's just a declaratory judgment vis-a-vis -vis these parties in a partial summary judgment. Now, our understanding of that judgment, and I think Judge O'Connor's understanding of that judgment, was that it did have injunctive effect. Well, he that's says it's not an injunction several times in his order. That's true, Your Honor, but that's why he entered a stay of his ruling pending appeal, and as part of that determination, he also concluded that his judgment would harm us. That's one of the necessary factors to enter a stay. Now, we have understood this judgment as binding the United States with respect to our, um, with respect to our states, and if that it, it would mean. If it is not binding with respect to your states, do you agree that you would lack standing in this appeal? No, Your Honor, for two reasons. First, I would want to know the scope of the remedy 
in order to determine whether or not it did impose practical harm on Well, there is no remedy. It's just a declaration. So just standing with just a declaration, how do you have standing? And if the federal government is not going to structure its affairs according to that declaratory judgment and isn't going to start cutting off our Medicaid funds or making other changes, then we might not have standing just based on the practical harm. I do think that we also would suffer legal harm from the judgment below in the forms of possible collateral estoppel consequences. But this court doesn't need to answer those questions because all parties agree that it has jurisdiction under Windsor. And if I might with that turn to the merits, as I mentioned, the central feature of this appeal is that when Congress adopted the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it made the individual mandate unenforceable. That means that the individual mandate no longer requires anyone to do anything. And that means that it can be upheld as either a precatory provision similar to those that Congress adopts and that no one thinks poses a constitutional problem. What other statutes are there out there that use mandatory language like the one here that are now suggestions for better living or something like that that use the word precatory? What other statutes are there that the citizenry should know they don't have to really follow? Isn't that your argument is that don't pay no attention to the shall, just go forth and do good and this statute should just be ignored if you so please? Your Honor, there are other provisions in the U.S. Code that include the word shall and that aren't binding or aren't operative. For example, excuse me, severability clauses include the word shall, but courts don't treat them as binding. They are merely interpretive aids. There are also inoperative provisions that have no effect currently like Section 5000A, subsection C2B, Romanet I, which defines the amount of the alternative tax for the 2014 taxable year. That is another example of something that uses the word shall and has no effect. Now, Your Honor, we certainly find ourselves in an unusual situation and the virtue of our position of understanding this as either a precatory clause or as a suspended but continuing but suspended exercise of the taxing clause is that it would allow this court to uphold the individual mandate. And as NFIB underscored in this very context, when it is fairly possible to interpret a statute in a manner that will save it from a ruling of unconstitutionality, courts have a duty to adopt that construction. But you'll agree, notwithstanding that, that Congress could have included a severability clause such as what you've mentioned a few minutes ago when it adopted the ACA in 2010. Couldn't it have done so? It seemed like it did the opposite where it said this is a very comprehensive overhaul and it set forth a bunch of factual findings. Couldn't Congress have said, oh, by the way, we think all of these provisions are such excellent ideas and helpful to the public that if any of them go by the wayside, well, then we would want all of these to the remainder to continue to apply. The Supreme Court has said that Congress's silence on this point is just that silence and it doesn't create a presumption against severability. If Congress doesn't include a severability clause, it doesn't create a presumption against severability. And that does bring me to the severability question here. Can we talk just a little bit more about the merits? Why is a command not a command if the CBO says it is for some people? And indeed, Blackstone himself said that people follow the law just to follow the law because they want to be good citizens. 
So without regard to whether there's a penalty, why isn't a command a command? And in NFIB, the court said that this provision, even though it includes the word shall, doesn't have to be read as a standalone command to buy health insurance. Right, because it was in conjunction with the tax. But the Chief Justice also said that the most natural reading of the provision was as a command. That's correct, Your Honor. So if you no longer have the tax, why isn't it unconstitutional? Because it is possible to still understand this as a precatory provision that doesn't create any rights or obligations. But how can it be precatory if the most natural reading of it is a command that does require action by the federal government telling someone to buy insurance? Because, Your Honor, this is an alternative reading that's available to the court. As I mentioned a moment ago, it is an unusual reading, but we think that the better course for this court to chart is the one laid out by NFIB, which is to adopt this understanding of the individual mandate as either a precatory. If it doesn't apply, if this is no longer a tax, then what happens? Then there are no negative legal consequences for going without health care coverage. You are violating the law. You are not, and that's what NFIB makes clear. You are not violating the law if you don't buy health insurance right now. Individuals who don't buy health insurance, nothing bad will happen to them. There are, to use NFIB's words, no negative legal consequences. Do you agree that we're not at liberty to uphold this based upon the Commerce Clause or the Necessary and Proper Clause, given that there have been five votes in the court against those propositions? And we think the best way to understand this is as a kind of precatory provision. But do you agree? And, Your Honor, yes. You agreed with that proposition, and I was hoping you would. I think that there are, the Commerce Clause, it can't be upheld on a basis. It can be upheld as either a taxing power or necessary and proper, using the same construct that NFIB did. If the court thinks that Congress requires an Article I power to keep this kind of provision on the books, it can look to the taxing power. Section 5000A still contains references to the number of dependents. It still has subsection G, which says the IRS can't bring criminal prosecutions. Now, of course, it's not generating revenue anymore. But this court in Ardoin rejected the argument that a law must generate revenue at all times to be upheld as a taxing power. Does the tax, the 2017 tax cut to zero, change to zero in the, I believe it's 5000B, is that permanent, absent further action from Congress, or does it have an expiration? And I'd like to answer your question, Your Honor. I also want to make sure I have some time. Well, I'd like you to, too. I'd like to know. I mean, it seems like a yes or no question in terms of— Congress and Congress— Make sure you have time to talk about severability. We want to hear about that, too. So if you could please answer Judge Inglehart's question. Thank you, Your Honor. No, without further action from Congress, that amount will be set at zero. Okay. So on the severability question, the Supreme Court has instructed that the severability inquiry is one of congressional intent. And here, we think the answer is straightforward. In this case, we know what Congress would have done by examining what it did in the text of the TCJA. It rendered the individual mandate unenforceable by zeroing out the only negative legal consequence for going without health care coverage, and at the same time chose not to repeal the preexisting condition protections or any of the other important reforms made by the Affordable Care Act. 
And with that action, Your Honors, Congress expressed its views that the individual market and indeed the entire Affordable Care Act can operate without an enforceable individual mandate. Now, we think that that's all this court needs to know to resolve the severability question. To use a different... The King v. Burwell opinion seems to be very specific in its language, particularly with regard to the guaranteed issue, the community rating provision, of course, the individual mandate, and I know you've read that, as have most people involved in this, but it seems like the language used is pretty heavy when it comes to those provisions being interlocking or intertwining. How do we unravel that in light of the King v. Burwell language? And that reflected the view of, I think, the 2010 Congress, but the question here isn't about what Congress thought in 2010 or what the Supreme Court said in 2015. It is instead what Congress did in 2017. And with its actions in the text of the TCJA, Congress made the individual mandate unenforceable and chose to leave the rest of the ACA's provisions, including the preexisting conditions. But weren't they in a reconciliation process at that point? Weren't they limited in what they could do with regard to the tax bill in 2017? They were, Your Honor, but that doesn't change the analysis here. The relevant thing is that Congress made the individual mandate unenforceable. To use a different... The tax unenforceable, not the mandate itself. And there's no difference between the mandate tax and the mandate itself, and we know that for... But surely word had reached Congress from the Supreme Court building that the NFIB opinion had been rendered. I mean, surely Congress knew that the linchpin that Justice Roberts described had been adjusted. Is that not correct? I mean... And Congress drew a different determination in 2017... How do you know that? And, Your Honor, that would be imputing to Congress an intent to create an unconstitutional law. And also, Your Honor, there were several members who voted for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and specifically came forward and said, we are not repealing the preexisting protection conditions. We're not repealing the subsidies. That would mean that they were misleading the American public and their constituents when they said those things. But the only way to know what Congress intended is what they say through their legislation. And they left in place the mandatory nature of the mandate. Can you help me with that, please? And, Your Honor, they made the mandate unenforceable by getting rid of the tax. And it is clear that Congress intended for the two things to be one and the same. The House of Representatives reply brief at page 5 collects several statements from members of Congress, including Speaker Ryan, in which he said, with this tax bill, we are, quote, repealing the individual mandate. Can we use those faces in the crowd, whether they're friendly or not? Yes, Your Honor, you can. The Supreme Court, in resolving severability questions, has looked to things like statements of Congress. The CBO report also told members of Congress that there was no practical difference between zeroing out the alternative tax and repealing the individual mandate. Where are the statements from those who voted in 2010 saying, no worries, the individual mandate isn't really a mandate? Even though it says shall, we're voting on this today, and citizens, 
you still ha this is an option that you can pay a tax or you can buy the insurance. Where were, since you're using quotes, and I have to tell you, I'm not a fan of using quotes from elected officials who say a lot of things for a lot of reasons to support, I'm not a fan of using that to support an opinion in court because as Judge Elrod said, we depend on the law expressing the will of the legislature or the Congress at this point. But where are the statements, since you're bringing up all these statements, where are the statements from 2010 saying, don't worry about the individual mandate, it's actually not something that requires you to buy insurance? I don't know where those statements might be, Your Honor, but I would like to say that our point here doesn't rely on the statements of members of Congress. All the court has to do is look at the text of the TCJA, see that Congress zeroed out the only thing that made the individual mandate enforceable. That is the beginning and the end of the severability analysis. These other things that we've pointed to, like the statements from members of Congress, like the 2017 CBO report, like the failed efforts at repeal, are just supporting pieces for us. This court's analysis can begin and end with the TCJA. I also see I'm over my time, um, but if I might, you may, but I have some questions. So why yes, don't we give um, give you three more minutes and give um, the other side three more minutes? Yes, Your Honor. And Thank you so very much, Your Honor. You may be heard, on, and then I'll ask you questions right. after you. And, and there's just one more point that I'd want to make here. Another frame that the Supreme Court has used to determine the severability question um, is one of functional similarity. And here, if this court were to declare the individual mandate unconstitutional and render it unenforceable, but leave the rest of the Affordable Care Act in place, it would be creating a statute that is not just consistent with Congress's design, but one that would operate in a manner that is exactly the way Congress designed things in 2017. So for those reasons and for the other contextual factors that we have pointed to here, including, I think importantly, the, the failed efforts at repeal that were, you know, bills that were rejected by this Congress just months beforehand, before they voted to zero out this alternative tax. Those are powerful indications that if a remedy that is needed here, the one that is most consistent with Congress's intent, would be the one that does exactly what Congress did, which is to render the individual mandate to declare it unenforceable as a matter of law and sever it from the rest of the ACA. Council, can we turn back to the standing of, of the plaintiffs, please, for a moment? If in this declaration, um, one of the states, I think it's Missouri, says that it has to pay $50,000 to send out this night, uh, if for the year 2021, to send out this form, 1095B to everyone, why isn't that a tangible cost that would render standing for the state of Missouri? Because that cost is imposed not by Section 5000A, but by other provisions of the ACA. Okay. Namely, they say that it's by 5000, that they have to do it by because of this, right. and there's nothing in the record that says from an IRS official or an expert that you've hired that says it's really because of some other reason. Well, so why wouldn't the summary judgment record control on that point? Respectfully, Your Honor, I understand them to be pointing to 26 U.S.C. 6055 and 6056 as the reason that they have to issue these forms. That is not Section 5000A. Um, and as this court held, both in National Federation of the Blind and in HOTS, in order to bring a constitutional challenge to a particular provision, the plaintiffs first have to show that they are injured by that provision, 
then show that that provision is unlawful or unconstitutional, and only then do you get the severability analysis. Is there a symmetry in our standing analysis for plaintiffs and interveners legally? I don't think so, Your Honor. I think it is clear to us, at least, that the judgment below would cost us hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funds. Our position here is that the state plaintiffs haven't made out their evidentiary burden to show that Section 5000A is harming them. If we were in the D.C. Circuit or the Tenth Circuit, would your answer be the same? Because they don't have that case. Yes, Your Honor. They have a different standing analysis. Yes, Your Honor. I think the answer would be the same. The requirements of Article III and what a party has to show at the summary judgment stage are the same. Who would have standing? No one would have standing, Your Honor. No one would have standing to contest a mandatory enactment of Congress that says that a citizen shall do something? No one? No one, Your Honor, and that's because no one is harmed by this provision. It's like we fought a war over that some 200 and something years ago when the king would say you have to do the act. And it's not backed up. And the important distinction here, Your Honor, is that it is not backed up with any negative legal consequences. If I don't buy health care coverage next year, nothing bad is going to happen to me. Is that your answer for the individuals? Because we haven't talked about the individuals. That is my answer for the individual plaintiffs. They can satisfy their legal obligations by doing nothing. I see I'm once again over my time, but I'd be happy to answer further questions. I think we'll catch you on the next round. Thank you very much, Your Honors. I appreciate it. May it please the Court. I'm Douglas Sletter. I'm the General Counsel of the House of Representatives. I have an overall theme that I want to hit in a moment, but because Judge Engelhardt's questions, I think, go right to the heart of this case. I'd like to hit them first, if you don't mind. Judge Engelhardt, you were saying we have this mandatory language, and therefore the people of the United States would know that there's a mandate. That's not correct. Remember, the Supreme Court said unequivocally in NFIB that there's a choice. It's not a mandate. There's a choice. You can either, you shall maintain health insurance, or you pay this tax. So that is the definitive interpretation of what the Affordable Care Act means. The Supreme Court said that, and yes, Congress was well aware of that, very well aware of that, and this Court obviously is bound by that. Everybody in this courtroom and the Congress, we're all bound by what the Supreme Court majority held in the Affordable Care Act case. We know that Congress has the authority to take a tax of a certain amount and make it zero. There's no doubt about that. Nobody can contest that. Congress did that. That means the choice is still there. The choice that the Supreme Court said was in this statute. At that time, the choice was maintain health insurance or pay a significant tax. The choice now is maintain health insurance or there is no tax. There is no penalty. Congress, again, was free to do that. Absolutely nothing changed 
what the Supreme Court had told all of us is the law, and that is still binding now. So we know definitively shall in this provision does not mean must. Whatever it means in other statutes, the Supreme Court definitively told us shall does not mean must. And to show exactly what Chief Justice Roberts knew exactly what he was writing when he said that for the majority, if you look at the, um, the Supreme Court's NFIB decision, a key part, 567 U.S. at page um, two, uh, 568, Chief Justice Roberts spoke about, says, um, there are all sorts of people who are not going to be subject to the tax that was in the original statute. So the question is, so Chief Justice Roberts says, we would expect Congress to be troubled by the prospect of making all of those people outlaws. But nevertheless, Chief Justice Roberts says, it suggests instead that the shared responsibility payment merely imposes a tax citizens may lawfully choose to pay in lieu of buying health insurance. So the Supreme Court gave us the answer already. And this ties in then with, with my overall theme. What the plaintiff states are asking here, and frankly what the district court did, is entirely inconsistent with how we know courts are supposed to act. Because we know that courts are required to uphold, to give a statutory provision, a possible interpretation, if that is constitutional, as opposed to one that is not. And we know under severability, you are directed, you are instructed to save everything you can unless it is evident. So the burden is on the other side. It is evident that Congress would not have meant that, would have preferred no statute. So, um, Your Honor, Judge Elrod, you're obviously, you're quite, both you and Judge Engelhardt are quite correct to say, we don't always trust statements by even the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader to tell us what something means. But remember, we don't have to show that Congress would have wanted this court to keep that language. The burden is on the other side to say it is evident, that's a high standard, that Congress wanted this entire statute to be struck down. And so the district court... Well, it doesn't have to have wanted it to. It, it's just a hypothetical. It, it, no, it's, it, the, court has, the Supreme Court has said in any number of severability decisions, you must uphold whatever can stand on its own. You're doing the severability. Correct. Correct, but, but this applies as well to the first part, because as we know, as my, my colleague, Mr. Siegel, pointed out, Congress did know what had been done in NFIB. It was obviously, it was aware. And Congress said, okay, we're going to zero out the penalty. Texas says, ha, caught you. You just did something unconstitutional because you left in place the individual mandate, but you got, you put the tax at zero. You just did something unconstitutional. But there's another way to read it. The other way is to actually follow what the Supreme Court said and say, no, you haven't done anything unconstitutional. 
you made the tax zero again we know everybody agrees congress has the power to do that and so a way of reading this is to save it and say that simply means the choice that chief justice roberts made clear to all of us is there that i know texas is unhappy with what chief justice roberts did they wish he had done something different but he didn't and that's the majority of the supreme court and that is binding and that was binding on the district court but you don't believe that well obviously you don't believe that the that the statutes changed it's it's changes have made that not a possible reading anymore but that that obviously is not correct your honor because the change again remember the change was something congress could do and it made clear through this change that there actually was even less coercion than there was before again remember before chief justice roberts said even with coercion even when faced with this major tax penalty you still have a choice now the degree of coercion that's at issue any coercion is 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 inappropriate unless it can be justified i mean it's not the degree of coercion it's whether or not it's tied to a revenue producing rule and and war isn't it no your honor that that i don't think is the question here that was a essential to the NFIB. Because, but again, what we're drawing from NFIB is, and, and there, there can be no dispute about this, the Supreme Court majority said there's a choice. You either, you either shall maintain health insurance or you shall pay this tax penalty. And Congress has now said, and the ones who did speak said, we don't want there to be any tax penalty. We want the American people to continue to have a choice. In fact, we want to make it an even easier choice for them. Do you want to address your client's standing, or are you just here to be prudentially assistance, prudential assistance to us today? Um, happy to, Your Honor. Um, first of all, the, the main thing I want to say to you is, under your precedent, you do not have to decide whether we are properly an intervener here or not. The Ruiz case is binding law of this circuit. Because there is Article III jurisdiction, nobody can doubt that, under Windsor, it's quite clear, and I think all the parties agree on that. Um, and because California, I think as persuasively argued by my colleague, Mr. Siegel, does have standing, it doesn't matter, this court does not have to resolve whether uh, the House has standing to intervene here or not. Now, we believe that Judge Southwick got this right, but this court what about, what about justice ginsburg did she get it right in a house of delegates case that case is written pretty generally it, uh, and it and it's a new case it is that exactly that your honor and obviously she got it right she wrote for the supreme court majority so it's right yes <laughs> you and i both know that but remember there the supreme court majority was dealing with a state let me back up just one more moment remember wrote you, it very generally in fact when i first saw the opinion in light of the this case being on our docket, uh, I was drawn to it and I said, well, it's probably written about the Virginia House of Delegates and about how that state's legislative framework is set up. But maybe a little to my surprise and yours as well, it seems as though the opinion is written in very general terms. Your Honor, the, and remember my, my first statement, which is you don't have to reach this. Under Ruiz, you don't have to. But Your Honor, yes. There, uh, I think there is at least one sentence, maybe two, that are framed broadly, but the rest of the opinion makes clear that, that, that Justice Ginsburg and the majority were talking about 
state which is obviously what they should do because i guess we can all read it and take what we will with from it but i don't read it that way at all in fact i think relegating the her statements to one or two little off statements that that we should overlook i think are is is i didn't get that from the opinion at all you are i don't i can't do it right this moment if you want i can read to you all the times that she says state and remember there's a very key difference Justice Ginsburg, and again, the Supreme Court majority, let's, we won't personalize it, let's make it the Supreme Court majority, said um, in Virginia, only the attorney general can litigate for the state, right? That's not true for the federal government. We know for the federal government, actually, Congress has provided and the Supreme Court has recognized all sorts of other people can litigate for the United States. For example, we have key tamra relators under the False Claims Act. Have we you have designated the House of Representatives as one of those bodies. Absolutely, Your Honor. Which one? 28 U.S.C. 530D says, in combination with the Chada decision, and I know Judge Engelhardt. Let's focus. The, uh, Justice Ginsburg mentions Chada, but she she says it might alternatively mean something else. You combine Chada with 530D. 530D says that the executive must notify both houses of Congress, I'm one of the people it's supposed to notify, when it's going to quit, when it is not, when it's going to basically let down the American people and not defend uh, a statute like this, even though there's obviously valid arguments to be made in support of it. But when that... Tell the American people if, if an, if a co-equal branch of government says something is unconstitutional, haven't they actually taken an oath that they won't be trying to um, uphold unconstitutional things unless you believe judicial supremacy is so vast that you that an, an, a, a branch isn't even allowed to have its own opinion at all? Good point, Your Honor, but... Is that, just, do you agree with what I just said or do you disagree? I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to agree and point out the Justice Department has for many, many decades had the position that it will defend acts of Congress if there's a reasonable defense for them. And here, the Justice Department, it, there clearly is a reasonable argument to be made. I assume, Your Honors, whether you agree or disagree ultimately with what we say, we've made a reasonable argument. The Justice Department has said, yeah, but we wish it were otherwise. So, but fine, fine, they've done that. But. Chada says, and there are a batch of cases, this circuit, for instance, this circuit, the Third Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, have cases where you have had situations where the House and the Senate, or the House alone, has intervened and defended constitutionality well, when the executive is I was going to ask you about not. that. I assume, since you're here on behalf of the House, uh, you're speaking on behalf of the House of the 111th Congress, the 115th Congress, and the 116th Congress. Only the 116th, Your Honor. Okay, all right. Well, but we're talking about the intent. We spent a considerable amount of time in briefing and here today talking about the intent of the 110th Congress, and we spent even more time talking about the intent of the 115th Congress, the tax of 2017. Shouldn't we also question why the Senate isn't here to talk about the intent, the will of Congress would necessarily implicate the Senate, wouldn't it? Why would they not be here to make the arguments you're making? Your Honor, um, the fair point and the, the answer is remember 
that what we say is the answer that Mr. Siegel gave. We're pointing you to the text of what Congress passed in 2017. We also like the legislative history. You pointed us also to some quotes from members of different parties of the Congress in 2017. So don't, and it seems like we're back to the text, which I'm very happy to hear. I'm very happy with the text here, but all I'm saying is you should take comfort from the fact that the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader agreed on this. But let's just go to the text. I'm very happy to do that, as is Mr. Siegel. The text is we got rid of the penalty. We put it at zero. And we left the entire rest of the statute intact. So why would not the Senate also, upon being notified, as you suggest, by the executive, why would the Senate not also be here to say, oh, this is what we meant when we wrote this? And, you know, they're sort of the 800-pound gorilla that's not in the room. Your Honor, the Senate operates differently from the House. Obviously, I can't speak for the Senate. But it doesn't matter whether the Senate's here or not. I'm giving you arguments. I'm not telling you you should rule this way because this is the position of the House. What I'm doing, I think, is saying, and with the proper respect here, you must rule this way because the Supreme Court told us in NFIB what the statute means, and in 2017, Congress said what it meant in the text, and we know what your responsibilities are in upholding any statutory language you can, particularly in the severability area. Again, it has to be evident that Congress would have preferred to have no statute at all. There is no evidence, not just little or the minority, there is no evidence of that. If the Court has no further questions, I'll save the rest of my time for both. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court. Kyle Hawkins for the State Plaintiffs. As it stands today, the Affordable Care Act presents a standalone command to buy an insurance product that the federal government deems suitable, and it does so without raising a single dime of revenue. The text of the Affordable Care Act declares that mandate essential to the law and the goals that Congress wanted to achieve. The Obama administration thought of that as an inseverability clause. The District Court correctly synthesized those considerations with the Supreme Court's holding in NFIB, and it reached the correct conclusion. The individual mandate is unconstitutional, and it is inseverable from the remainder of the law. Can we talk about that essential term? Because that's also used in reference to ERISA and other law in the statute. And you're not here trying to strike down ERISA, are you, by saying it's inseverable from ERISA? Your Honor, I'm not. I'm saying that the Affordable Care Act includes what amounts to an inseverability clause. It's in Section 18091 that says that the individual mandate itself, 
not the penalty but the individual mandate is essential to driving people to sign up for health insurance which itself is necessary for achieving the marketplace reforms that congress wanted congress was after universal health insurance and congress declared the mandate essential to achieving that goal there's some mention in the briefs uh, about provisions in the ACA that amended certain criminal statutes relating to health care fraud and things of that sort. Are you, is it your position that Congress would not have made those changes either but for the, the monolith of the ACA? Well, Your Honor, my position is that the best evidence of what Congress wanted to do is in the text, and the text includes this inseverability clause. And so I, I think it follows from that that uh, the ACA's minor provisions and major provisions all are inseverable from that clause. And indeed, that's not just my conclusion. Every Supreme Court justice who has looked at this question has concluded that the individual mandate is not severable from any other portion of the Affordable Care Act, and they did so in reliance on that clause. All four justices who looked at that question in NFIB reached the same conclusion. And of course, the seven justice majority, or excuse me, the six justice majority in King v. Burwell discussed uh, the mandate as operating as part of a three-legged stool, uh, to, to use the term of the D.C. Circuit in, in the lower case. The what do you was say to those who would say it's absurd to say that it's not severable from a restaurant calorie guidelines. What, what do you say to someone who says that? Well, I would say that uh, I'm not in a position to psychoanalyze Congress, and indeed uh, the courts are not to do, uh, are not to engage in psychoanalytical analytical tasks. I'm not in a position to guess what Congress would have intended. What I am in a position to do is to look at the plain text of the statute that's before the court today. If, if the court were to go back to the law library and pull out a current copy of the U.S. Code as it stands today, this court would see a command to the American people to maintain minimum essential coverage. It would see no revenue-raising capability of that law, and it would see an inseverability clause saying that this mandate is essential. Now, Congress has had multiple opportunities to excise that inseverability clause from the language of the statute. And I think if we're going to go about looking uh, at what various Congress people might have wanted or might have been thinking or did vote on or didn't vote on, I think we should take into account the fact that Judge O'Connor's decision has been on the books now for seven months, declaring the unconstitutional mandate inseverable from the rest of the law. Congress has done nothing about that. If Congress thought that conclusion was wrong, it could have gone back and it could have excised the individual mandate from the law. It could have excised the inseverability clause from the law. It hasn't done any of that. And I think that that just demonstrates that congressional intent is not monolithic. As your honors correctly observed during my colleague on the other side's presentation, it's a very difficult and dangerous game to try to determine what different Congress people were thinking about when they voted for various statutory provisions. The best evidence is the text itself. And I would further submit that if Congress believed that it did, that the inseverability clause was no longer appropriate, if it believed that the mandate was no longer necessary to the law, it had a duty to excise that statute from the law or that section from the law. But it didn't do that, and it is not this court's role to act as a legislature and cut sections out of a statute that Congress has had the opportunity to amend 
but has not done so simply because the court thinks as my friends on the other side suggest that it can guess as to what various congress people were actually thinking about comment on justice thomas opinion in murphy that we don't have our blue pencils in any regard and we just should say as applied to these parties we're not going to we're not going to apply this this law yes your honor i think the important consideration in murphy is that that case we don't have a severability clause or an inseverability clause at issue there is whether the professional and amateur sports protection act must be struck down in its entirety including the advertising provisions of that law notwithstanding the unconstitutional portion of it that commandeered the states in violation of the 10th amendment i think that our view today is entirely consistent with justice thomas's opinion in murphy because what separates this from murphy is that here we have an inseverability clause now courts traditionally treat severability clauses almost as dispositive and in fact we saw that in nfib itself as the medicaid expansion seven justices on the court voted to hold the medicaid expansion unconstitutional and they decided to sever that portion from the remainder of the eca and they did so because the medicaid act contains a severability clause that was almost as positive for the supreme court and i would submit that if courts treat severability clauses as almost as positive they should do the same for inseverability clauses so in that sense i think we're quite different from the statute at issue in murphy the paspa which didn't speak to that issue nearly as clearly as the affordable care act speaks to the issue of severability before the court today counsel could you speak to whether or not we should be treating this as an injunction um as opposing counsel argued well judge elrod we think that's what we got in the district court at least effectively that's what i thought i thought you agreed with them even though it says this is not you know not granting an injunction instead granting partial summary judgment on this declaratory judgment right so uh in in district court we of course asked for a nationwide injunction in joining the enforcement of the aca and we asked for a declaration that the individual mandate was unconstitutional and inseverable from the rest of the aca now at oral argument judge o'connor asked about the relief that we were seeking and we represented that we would like a nationwide injunction as well as a declaration the federal government's position before the district court was that an injunction was not necessary the the government asked the district court not to enter an injunction they said we don't need one we're going to treat the declaration as uh as though it were an injunction we're going to comply you agree with i think on page six and ten of the latest submission from the government uh that this relief the ruling from judge o'connor doesn't extend beyond the plaintiff states in this case do you agree with that or where where would we go if we were to affirm judge o'connor and send the case well assuming it doesn't obviously go higher if the case went back to judge o'connor what would he do what would you expect him to do if you're seeking injunctive relief and the federal government is now saying that well no worries this ruling only applies to the plaintiff states would that be satisfactory well your honor i think it would depend on what the federal government does uh they represented and i've already said that they don't think the ruling applies elsewhere 
And that's a disappointment to us because we think that's inconsistent with what they represented to Judge O'Connor in the district court. Now, if they were to, uh, following the conclusion of this case, assuming it's affirmed, if they were to not apply the Affordable Care Act, I think we would then have to evaluate uh, whether uh, we'd been the victim of a bait and switch, and we might have to go back to district court and seek the injunction that we didn't get initially. Yes, and we didn't get the injunction if, if the court determined, if, if you were entitled to it legally, um, if the court ruled on the, on the partial summary judgment, and then you have to go back for further the relief, the remedy hasn't been spoken of yet. I think that's right, Your Honor, that we, we, we will go back to district court. Uh, whether or not we need to seek an injunction, I think I'm not prepared to make a representation on that today. I think it will depend on what the federal government does going forward. And but I'm not saying you're entitled to any injunction. I'm just saying that to the extent that you say, well, we thought we already had one or something like that, you're not to that process yet as the way that, the, that the, it's a partial summary judgment well, we're just taking the. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Go ahead. We're just taking the federal government at their word. I, I think now their briefing, their supplemental briefing, to suggest that it only applies in the 18 plaintiff states. I don't think that's the message that uh, we heard from them in the district court. Uh, and so we will be evaluating our options moving forward as to what further relief we may need to seek. Um, do you want to address your client's standing? Yes, Your Honor, I'd be happy to do that. Um, a, a couple of points on standing. I think, first, there should be no doubt that this court has Article III jurisdiction. Uh, for the reasons that Mr. Henneke will present shortly, the individual plaintiffs are plainly injured. Uh, they clearly have an Article III injury, in fact, and that's enough for this court to proceed to the merits. Uh, but if I were wrong about that, uh, it's important to note that the states have standing in their own right because the Affordable Care Act causes the states a classic pocketbook injury. Uh, we, of course, have uh, evidence in the record below, including the CBO reports, which looked at uh, the mandate and said that this is going to encourage people and indeed cause people to sign up for health insurance. And it will do that regardless of whether or not there's a penalty attached to it because people feel a duty to comply with the law even if there's no penalty attached to it. Now, just a few days ago, all nine justices in the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that a state has standing to challenge federal action that might have the predictable effect of causing third parties to act in ways that injure the state. Do that you was. Agree, do you agree that Mr. Siegel's clients also have standing? Well, we do, Your Honor. We agree on the basis of our understanding that the district court's declaration is, is meant to apply nationwide and, and would have the effect of an injunction. And we don't doubt that if it were applied nationwide, it would cause a classic pocketbook injury to uh, states and all. Right, to all states and that they wouldn't get uh, certain funding that the Affordable Care Act makes available. Do we have to get into that third party census issue? If Can you, can you address whether or not this printing of this form in Missouri is $50,000 worth of standing, so to speak? Well, yes, I, I think that's an independent basis for... Or is it not? Because they say it's not really pursuant to that part of the... It's not 5000 
Well, it's not in the text of 5000A, that's true, but it is part of the implementing regs. We've all seen these 1095B and C forms where they've got, you know, the months January through December laid out, and as employers, we have to go through and check boxes to say which months our employees had health insurance, and I think it's fair to say that that is traceable to the individual mandate, which requires continuous coverage, except for short gaps. Is there anything in the record whatsoever that indicates that any of these requirements checking off the box for I guess I'll ask the, the individual plaintiff's attorney but checking off the individual box or sending out these forms is no longer required or will no longer take place is there anything in the record that indicates that there is not that we're aware of as far as we know uh, we haven't heard from the IRS that they're going to do anything differently for next year's tax forms we haven't seen those yet but what we do have is evidence in the record that the forms injure us and there's nothing in the record that I'm aware of that that's going away in light of the TCJA. Uh, so that is, I, th I think your honor is quite correct, that's an independent basis for our injury. Uh, in well, addition- Question, not a statement, but okay. Uh, understood, your honor, but I, I, think it, I think that is a basis for our injury, as is the CBO reports. Uh, the, AC, the ACA causes a classic pocketbook injury to the states, uh, and that should be the end of the standing analysis, if the court even gets that far, if it were to have doubts about the individual plaintiff's standing. Um, I'd like to address a few points that the other side has raised uh, in their presentation. Uh, first and foremost, I think that the other side, particularly uh, my friend Mr. Letter, is uh, seriously misreading the Supreme Court's decision in NFIB. NFIB holds that the individual mandate is unlawful. It holds that 5000 AA is best read as a command to buy insurance. And it held that that command, despite being unlawful, can only be saved if it is fairly possible to read the law as a tax. It follows that if the law cannot fairly be read as a tax, then the original holding stands and the mandate is unlawful. Now, I think it's crucial to understand the structure of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion to see how he gets there. In part 3A of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, he looks at the mandate, only the mandate, not the penalty, and he says the best way to read that is as a command to buy insurance. And then he says two things about it. That command, or excuse me, he says two things. One, that's a command to buy insurance. And two, that command cannot be justified by the Commerce Clause or by the Necessary and Proper Clause. And that's the end of 3A. He then shifts gears in parts 3B and 3C of his opinion, where he says, given our holding in part 3A, we need to determine whether there is some way to save the individual mandate. And that's, and what he finds out in 3B and 3C is that given the fact that there's a penalty provision and given that the penalty is raising revenue for the government, he says that we can glue the individual mandate provision to the penalty provision. And once they're glued together, then they function as a tax such that the law can be saved by construing this as a tax and that tax is available under the federal government's taxing power. Now, what happened in 2017 is Congress took away everything that supported parts 3B and 3C of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. This is no longer raising any revenue for the federal government. It no longer can be fairly characterized as a tax. So in light of the TCJA, parts 3B and 3C of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion are irrelevant. The only thing we're left with then is part 3A 
of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, where he holds that this is a command by insurance. Sever from the Supreme Court opinion, though, do we? <laughs> Your Honor, I think I think we read the Supreme Court opinion fairly in light of subsequent events, and I, I think that's I think it's crucial to do so here because the entire basis for 3B and 3C is now off the table. Now, Chief Justice Roberts, again, in 3A holds this is a command and it's not justifiable. That is fully supported by the four dissenting justices. There's no doubt there were five votes on the Supreme Court that it is a command not justifiable under the Commerce, uh, commerce Power or the Necessary and Proper Clause. And the best evidence that I'm right about this is Justice Ginsburg's dissent. In dissent, Justice Ginsburg faults Chief Justice Roberts for discussing the Commerce Clause, for reaching a Commerce Clause holding. Justice Ginsburg said, look, this is obviously a tax. We should just say that it's a tax and be done with it. We don't have to say anything about the Commerce Clause. But Chief Justice Roberts rejected that, and this is in part 3D of his opinion. He responds to Justice Ginsburg in 3D, and he says, no, I have to reach a Commerce Clause holding because this is best read as a command by insurance. So I have to read it. In its, in the, I have to give it the best reading possible, and then I have to assess whether that best reading is constitutional or not. And only after doing that analysis, then do I get to the taxing issue. So I think that interplay between Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Ginsburg shows that our reading of NFIB is correct, and the other side's reading of NFIB is incorrect, because it elides the differences between those four different parts of Section 3 of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. Do you really mean it when you say the shell is enough? What if it said you shall buy, buy insurance, but if you don't, you get an ice cream cone? You actually get something if you don't buy the insurance. What, what's the answer then? Well, Your Honor, I, I'm not sure how Congress would justify that under its enumerated powers. The question, though, is about is the, does the shell matter even if you're given positive incentives um, to not do it? Well, I'm, I'm not sure how that would be fairly read as a tax in a case like that. It sounds like it's not raising revenue for the federal government. So I think, again, you'd have a command to buy insurance, and I'm not sure what the permissible saving construction is it a command? would be. Is it still a command? It's still a command, Your Honor. What if you get a house instead of an ice cream cone? Yes, that, that is a command. It is still a command to buy insurance. That's the holding in Part 3A of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. It's not an economics analysis at all. No, I, I, I don't think it is. The, it's a command to buy insurance, and, and the federal government cannot do that under the Commerce Clause or the Necessary and Proper Clause. So the question then is when, whether that command, in Your Honor's hypothetical, can be glued to something somewhere else in the statute that would save it. That's what the chief did in 3B and 3C. Now, in the house buying hypothetical, that would be the question. You know, if you get a if you get a house out of it, does that somehow save it? I can't think of how it would, uh, but but that that is how the analysis should play out. Counsel, could could you address the writ of erasure fallacy? Why isn't striking the word shell a textbook example of the writ of erasure fallacy? If there's no government official enforcing the word shell. Well, Your Honor, the, uh, the, I think it's important to tie it back to the relief that we are seeking. We are asking for a declaration that this law is unconstitutional, that the mandate is unconstitutional, and we're asking for an injunction against the enforcement of the individual mandate and against the Affordable it's not Care just Act. The striking out of a word. 
No, that's right. We're not asking this court to get out an eraser. We're not asking the court to tear pages out of the U.S. Code. We're asking the court for specific forms of relief, a declaration and an injunction. That's what we saw below. That's what we're seeking all along. So I don't think there is any writ of erasure fallacy. We're not asking the court to erase anything. One or two. Do you have any citation? I don't believe, and I know one of you or many of you will correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe Justice Roberts, in the NFIB opinion, opines at all on severability because he doesn't reach that issue having found, as he did in the prior sections. Is there anything that you can cite us to, like a best case, that might suggest how severability would be viewed by Justice Roberts? I've read the dissent, of course, and we know how they feel about it, at least in the context of that case. Is there anything that you can point to that would suggest severability in this case for Justice Roberts in particular? I think the best case for that, Judge Englehart, would be King v. Burwell. In that case, that's about the various federal subsidies that go along for the exchanges. Chief Justice Roberts, in describing how all this works, talks about the individual mandate as being essential to the functioning of the other health care market reforms that the ACA sought to achieve. He particularly calls out the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions. Indeed, it's always been understood by the Obama administration and the Trump administration that that three-legged stool all fits together. So Chief Justice Roberts does speak to that in King v. Burwell, and I think that's the clearest statement that we've seen that the Chief would agree that this is not severable. Is the language that he uses broad enough for us to consider? I mean, you're asking for the entirety. As I mentioned when one of your colleagues was arguing earlier, I think they mentioned the guarantee issue, certainly in the community rating, among some other specific provisions that are intertwined. You believe that his statements in King v. Burwell are so broad as to include the entirety of the statute? I think they are, Your Honor, when combined with Your Honor's asking about Chief Justice Roberts specifically. Chief Justice Roberts has indicated on numerous occasions that text controls, that we start with the text, and when the text is clear and dispositive, we don't look further than that. So I think that he would agree that when you have an inseverability clause, it should be respected. Other cases, just off the top of my head, we talked earlier about Murphy v. NCAA. There, I believe the Chief Justice is in the majority declaring the PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, unlawful in its entirety. And, of course, the court reached that conclusion without the benefit of an inseverability clause that we have here today. So I think to answer Your Honor's question, there's ample jurisprudence to suggest that if one is committed to the text, as Chief Justice Roberts is, then it follows that the entire Affordable Care Act is inseverable from the unconstitutional mandate. To be clear, my question wasn't limited to the Chief Justice, but he is the author of the two opinions that we've been talking about a great deal here today. That's correct, Your Honor. What we know, Judge Englehart, is that every judge who's looked at this specific question now before the court has said that the mandate is inseverable from the rest of the law. Four for four in NFIB. You combine that with the opinion in King v. Burwell, which, again, was a six-justice opinion. That's good evidence that arguments are correct, that the mandate is not severable from the rest of the law. Counsel, do you have a Skelly oil problem? 
No, Your Honor, I don't think we have a Skelly Oil problem at all. Skelly Oil is a case about federal question jurisdiction. So what Skelly Oil is saying is that even though there's a federal statute called the Declaratory Judgment Act statute, that doesn't get you into federal court automatically just by invoking that statute. Instead, what the court needs to ask is, under the inverse hypothetical coercive suit, would that belong in state court or would that belong in federal court? If the answer is federal court, well, then there's no problem. Then Skelly Oil says, yes, there's federal question jurisdiction. But if that sort of inverse hypothetical coercive suit would actually belong in state court, then you don't get into federal court just by virtue of the Declaratory Judgment Act. I think that's what Skelly Oil is saying, and that's no problem here, of course. The hypothetical inverse coercive suit to enforce the ACA, of course, would be brought by the federal government. It would arise under federal law. So there's certainly no Skelly Oil problem here. And I believe the federal government agrees with us on that. They've got a footnote in their brief to that effect. I see I'm just about out of time. I'm happy to answer any additional questions. Otherwise, we would ask the court to affirm the judgment below in its entirety. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Hi. I'm August Flangey with the Justice Department here on behalf of the federal government defendants. I plan to go through three points. I'll go quickly through the ones the court has already addressed in detail. First, why this court has jurisdiction to address the merits. Second, why the plaintiff's claims succeed on the merits. And third, why the district court's judgment should be limited to injuries that the plaintiffs have standing to pursue here. First, in the court's supplemental briefing order, there were several questions. Some of them are complicated, but there's a simple answer that gets us through them, and I think all the parties agree, which is that this case follows the Windsor model. Critically to that, the United States continues to enforce the ACA, and it will do so pending a final resolution of this case. Given that enforcement, that is sufficient to have an Article III controversy between the plaintiffs and the United States. And, of course, the participation of the interveners is helpful to ensure a vigorous adversary presentation of the issues. And that's basically exactly what happened in Windsor. In both cases, the executive branch made a judgment that a statutory scheme it was administering was not constitutional, and the Supreme Court discussed the conundrum faced by the executive branch and decided this was a reasonable way to allow the judicial branch to have the final say. But you don't believe that the executive branch is required to continue to enforce. It's a choice, right? I think if – I think there are – I mean, there's enactments that might be unconstitutional that the executive branch handles by just not enforcing them. Say a criminal law that is on the books but not constitutional, the executive branch could simply not enforce it, and it would never get to court. But in a case like – It's not subject to – it's not because of – it may be prudential for you to wait for judicial supremacy, but it's not required. I think that's correct. But again – But you're choosing to here. Yes. The executive branch is continuing to enforce the ACA pending outcome. Even though it believes it's unconstitutional. And again, the Supreme Court discussed this conundrum in Windsor. There were some varying views on the court, but the majority accepted this as a reasonable way to manage, especially when you have a complicated statute that covers a lot of what – that covers a lot of ground. And that's what's happening here. The second point on jurisdiction is we think the individual plaintiffs have standing here. 
based on the combined impact of the mandate which requires them to buy insurance and the insurance reforms which ensure that that insurance they must buy is unsatisfactory. That is an injury that is sufficient for district court jurisdiction, of course, for this court's jurisdiction to evaluate the merits of the case. Does the government take a position on the states and any special solicitude under the Massachusetts case? We don't have a position on the state standing. Of course, the district court didn't address the state standing and it raises a variety of issues and our position is because the individual plaintiffs have standing, it was simple at the adjudication stage and the district court probably did handle things correctly in saying given that they have established standing, the court can go ahead and address the merits and not get into those other issues. By adopting the position that the district court's ruling applies only to the plaintiff states and the individual plaintiffs, is that not designed to reflect on the lack of standing of the intervener states? Yes. The question with the intervener states is do they have standing to appeal the district court judgment? And there you look at the judgment, it's a declaratory judgment. Under the declaratory judgment statute, the declaration is between the plaintiffs seeking the declaration and the defendant, the United States. So it declares the rights of the plaintiffs vis-a-vis the United States. It does not say anything about the rights of the intervener states or the House, although they're not talking about that. So I think the way to handle that issue and probably not fully satisfy the intervener states would be to make clear that they would not be bound as an estoppel matter because they are not participating as parties with standing. They would bring their own case somewhere else or here too if they wanted, I guess if they were eligible. I guess. I don't want to suggest anything. Can you help though? Because everybody else here says even though the district court's opinion says what it says, says that this was in lieu of injunctive relief and that the government said that they wouldn't, has the government smack dab in the middle of all this understanding and you're saying something different? Well, the district court issued a declaratory judgment. Now a final declaratory judgment declaring the rights between us and the plaintiffs, the federal government will follow that judgment as to what the law means between the parties. Texas has talked about, well, we're only going to do it in their states. Actually, we're going to do it with respect to the plaintiffs. So if that means additional actions would need to be taken that had impact beyond those states, that would be part of following the law as declared by the district court. So it is a declaratory judgment. I don't know that there's a big daylight between what an injunction would mean and what a declaratory judgment would mean at the end of the day once there is a final ruling. And so that gets me to the point that a lot of these technical issues are important when you're talking about district court judgments, but a case like this likely would end up with a precedential decision of this court or the Supreme Court and as a precedential matter, then it binds as precedent and that sort of might obviate some of the technical issues on the scope of the judgment, how that would work in different contexts. Counsel, the district court was modest in the extent that it granted a stay of its own order pending all of this going on so that no one had to go. What if that stay were not in place? Then what would happen? What's the government planning to do? Well, 
again where we we think it's great that the stay is in place this is a very complicated program it has it multifaceted obviously it's 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 a significant part of the economy and that was that was important to the united states as far as a how compliance with the declaratory declaratory judgment that is final but on appeal i mean i think that raises complicated issues and i think we're we appreciative of the existence of the stay so those things don't need to get sorted out until there's a final ruling and the, the, the case is fully resolved and the appeals are exhausted. But the government believes or anticipates that it could find the act to be inseverable and do so only in certain states and strike it down only in certain states in its entirety? Is that, the government believes that's a possibility? The Again, I think a lot of this stuff would have to get sorted out, and it's complicated. So I think that's that's one reason the stay was granted. I think how it applies in the states, which parts can't be applied at all because they would injure the states and they are part of the declaratory judgment, I think that it, those that raises a lot of complicated issues, which I think uh, militated in favor of the stay, militated in favor of getting a final resolution with all appeals exhausted before that step is taken, and then then and then uh, go from there. So, so we're, your, your position is we're not nearly there. We're not even to remedy at all. No, well, I mean, the district court issued things. a final remedy. So there is a, there is a final remedy. The ACA is declared invalid. Right, we think that's a little a, overbroad. Yeah. Sorry. Right. It doesn't say where it applies or whether it applies beyond these parties to this suit. I think that's right. That comes from the Declaratory Judgment Act. It says that we cannot apply the ACA to these plaintiffs. Now, if that means we can't apply it at all, that is what it means. We just don't, we haven't gone down that road yet. And well, again, I think- Well, the intervening states have intervened, I believe, before even the motions were pending in the case. They intervened, uh, if I recall correctly from the briefs, prior to the amended complaint. Yes. So they're early on, and the district court's judgment doesn't make a distinction between uh, and I realize that issue wasn't before it, so that it could clarify, but it doesn't make a distinction between the plaintiff states and the intervener states. So we have what we have here. Yeah, but in this it was, the plaintiffs were seeking the declaration, and they were seeking a declaration of the rights between the plaintiffs and the United States. They weren't seeking a declaration of their rights amongst each other. But so. Does the district court use the word parties? Excuse me? I thought the district court used the word parties. I, I could stand to be correct, corrected. There's so much of Yeah, I'd have to check that, but I just don't think that would be. If the word parties, then does that mean the interveners who are already at the party, so to speak? Uh, and I don't we think, think that would be a misuse of the Declaratory Judgment Act, uh, given that they are not, they, they would, I don't think they'd have a basis of seeking a declaratory judgment against the states. We're the ones that enforce the ACA. So I just don't think that would work. Uh, so I think reading parties in that manner as reasonable is probably the way to go there. Uh, and, and I think it's a simple solution. And again, I think if the states could get some comfort if, it, if, if this court made clear that they were, would not be stopped or bound by, because of their status, so their special status as kind of aiding, aiding the court in an adversary position, presentation. Uh, That's an interesting statement for you to make. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, I just, 
we think that's how the law would work we think that's the operation of the subpoena of an opinion of this court in the district court would work that way given the scope of the declaratory judgment act given this the standing issues and given the fact that the declaratory judgment act can really only declare the rights between these the people on actually on the same side of the bench here but that's those are the rights that can be declared under that statute the only other thing I'd say on remedy is that a point we made in our brief where we differ with the plaintiff somewhat is that the remedy should also the declaratory remedy should also be limited to the injuries that are established by the plaintiffs again we think this is more of a technical point we it's a very important institutional point for the government that district court judgments should be limited to the dispute between the parties and the injuries that establish standing for the plaintiffs again we don't think that needs to be sorted out which provisions the ACA would 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 be covered and not covered because that was not addressed in the district court it would require an assessment of injuries to Texas which the district court didn't conduct and again it might all be obviated if there is a precedential ruling from a higher court that resolves this these kinds of issues as a matter of precedent could you help a bit with that that's that's a little bit vague because it seems that there's an argument that it was in inseverable all the way you know that the government was making but then the government says that only a couple of the other provisions would be wrapped up in it and for example the restaurant provision wouldn't be wrapped up in it or these other or these criminal laws what what is the government's position it's inseverable from the other two parts that I can't think of the names of right this second you could help me with that guaranteed issue community rating and the mandate thank you and also the insurance reforms as they said in King so it's inseverable from those but not from the rest and so you would leave in place the calorie guy right it's really important to think our argument on the scope of the judgment is totally separate from our argument on severability severability as 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 this court said in National Federation of the Blind you look at what the unconstitutional provision in light of the statute as a whole and as the dissenters in NFIB looked at the state you can't really assess it without analyzing the whole statute because it was all enacted together it all worked together it is are you saying it's entirely inseverable now I could or you argued perhaps that it some parts of it could be taken kept are you saying the whole thing must go now our position is the entire act is is not severable however this the judgment might still be limited the judgment of the district court should still assess the injury that these various provisions caused to plaintiffs and should not declare a provision that has no impact on the plaintiffs to be unlawful based on applying severability so the court might say the the reason this is inseverable is because the whole statute rises or falls together we have the 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 findings that work as a non severability clause we have nine justices who said this all works together we have all this assessment of severability that looks at the statute as a whole so as far as the the district courts or this courts legal reasoning it could say the statute rises and falls together however the judgment needs to be narrowed a little bit you need to narrow the judgment the actual declaratory judgment to those provisions that injure and impact the plaintiffs and send the case back to look at already you didn't litigate that in the district court when the district court was writing the the partial declaratory judgment I think I mean I think to the extent 
Again, we think it's an Article III issue, so yes, we did raise it in our brief in this court for the first time, and you know, we, we do think, you know, given that, uh, it would be appropriate to remand to consider the, the scope of the judgment on that point. But again, we think it's more of a technical point because, we, because uh, uh, again, the severability analysis requires looking at the statute altogether, and uh, obviously, uh, there's the precedential impact of this court's decision or a higher court's decision that could make a lot of the, sorting out a lot of those details unnecessary down the road. Thank you, I think we have your argument. Thank you. Good afternoon, your honors. May it please the court. My name is Robert Henneke with the Texas Public Policy Foundation here on behalf of the individual plaintiff, Appalese, Neil Hurley, and John Nance. Mr. Hurley and Nance have standing to bring this action because they are directly injured by the Affordable Care Act, and the relief they seek would redress that injury. My clients clearly have an injury, in fact, pocketbook injury. It is the law of the land that they have to purchase a product that they don't want. And to your point during the appellant's time, Your Honor, the record is undisputed on that, citing to Record on Appeal 641 where Mr. Hurley states, I continue to maintain minimum essential health coverage because I am obligated. Mr. Nance at 637 states, I am obligated to comply with the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. Furthermore, at Record on Appeal 636 and 640, my clients are additionally injured by expensive coverage, loss of doctor choice, decreased quality of care, and rationing of care. They also must incur the cost of IRS reporting requirements related to the filing of their taxes and compliance with the individual mandate. In response to the appellant's claim that my client's injury and self-inflicted, again, one only need to look at the text of 5000A, subsection A, which mandates that certain individuals, quote, shall ensure that they are, quote, covered under minimum essential coverage. Noteworthy also are the exceptions which provide that certain other individuals remain subject to the mandate but are exempt from the then penalty for noncompliance. The ACA contemplates the individual mandate carries the force of a command because categories of persons are subject to it without the penalty. And the individual mandate, yes ma'am. So it's your position that those people would have standing uh, if they, even if they weren't buying insurance, if they were in one of those exempted categories, they're uh, still before they, you know, like back at the time of the, of the original argument, um, I believe Justice Kagan asked a question about that, whether or not people who don't have to pay the, pay the penalty um, automatically who are exempt, are they would they have standing? Well, there's still a command there, and that's a, a great point that you bring up, Your Honor. Uh, because I, I want to go back to the history of NFIB and address the appellant's argument that my client's harm is self-inflicted. This was resolved in the case history of NFIB, and Your Honor will recall that in NFIB, the shared responsibility payment, the choices alleged by appellants, was not effective until 2014. NFIB was 2012 and before. The sole basis for the NFIB individual plaintiffs as set forth in their declarations was the individual mandate, not the penalty. And in denying the government's motion to dismiss on standing, 
the NFIB trial court, as did Judge O'Connor, correctly held that the individuals had an injury. This argument was carried through the 11th Circuit and all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was addressed during the first day of argument in questions from both the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan was questioning the attorney for NFIB, now Judge Katsas, and Justice Kagan asked, Mr. Katsas, do you think a person who is subject to the mandate but not subject to the penalty would have standing? Mr. Katsas responded, yes, I think that person would because that person is injured by compliance with the mandate. Justice Kagan asked, well, what would that look like? What would the argument be as to what the injury was? Mr. Katsas replied, the injury, when that person is subject to the mandate, that person is required to purchase health insurance that is a forced acquisition of an unwanted good. It is a classic pocketbook injury. Counsel, what do you say to those who might say, well, they argue that, but the court didn't actually make a standing. You know, it could be considered maybe drive-by standing. Some people use that colloquial term. So what do you say to that? While there might be questions on a topic, indeed, we may ask in our court questions today, but it doesn't mean that we've answered a question a certain way. Well, we can say for certainty that the Supreme Court NFIB did proceed forward to resolve the merits of the case. I believe it's implicit that it was resolving this question of the individual plaintiff standing in the affirmative by reaching the merits after addressing this during oral argument. And I think the trial court, again, correctly did so here. So I see, if you look at the case history of NFIB, that this is ground that has been well covered, that individual plaintiff standing has been addressed and resolved. And again, going back to the text of the ACA, the other side's choice argument is wrong because the choice language only arises in the context of the savings construction, agreeing with Mr. Hawkins. And the mandate was recognized as not being a choice in Section 3A when Chief Justice Roberts found that the mandate was best construed as, quote, a command to purchase insurance, or sorry, a command to buy insurance. I would also like, Your Honor, to address a second path to traceability, and that was addressed in the notice of supplemental authority that we filed last week with regard to the Supreme Court case, Department of Commerce v. New York. First, of course, we've already argued how my client's injury is directly traceable to the individual mandate, pointing the court to record on Appeal 2770. Without the individual mandate, Mr. Hurley and Nance would not be required, in violation of the Constitution, to maintain specific health insurance coverage, nor would they be subject to an increased regulatory burden. But the Supreme Court and Department of Commerce also recently upheld standing as a result of, quote, the predictable effect of government action, and that's at Slip Opinion, page 11. Traceability in Department of Commerce was met when third parties reacted in predictable ways to the citizenship question, even when they did so unlawfully. Here, the predictable reaction is lawful. Individual plaintiff's purchase of minimum essential coverage is likely a predictable reaction to the 5000A, subsection A, individual mandate legal command. New York relied on historical data to show predictable effect. 
in this situation both the two thousand and eight and two thousand and seventeen congressional budget office reports conclude that some individuals will comply with the mandate absent penalties if we were inclined assuming argue window to take that argument would that mean that we would have to overrule our other opinions which might say that third party causation is not enough to generate standing well here what we have it's even better though is you have the direct evidence of the individual plaintiffs that's greater evidence to establish standing so you don't need that that census argument we don't need the census argument but it I think bolsters the traceability argument in explaining how it is fairly predictable and supports the testimony of my clients that the command in the statute is then what they have done it's not just a predicted effect it is what happened and the result of that is that they continue to maintain minimum essential coverage because the law says that they have to again going back to the record which was not disputed and that's at 637 and 640 41 and with that your honors unless there's any additional questions we also request that you affirm the trial courts judgment below in its entirety thank you thank you yes we are your honor the I'm arguing first on rebuttal for seven minutes and then thank you and if I could just so pause for one second this is why I became a lawyer I hope you're enjoying yourselves as much as I am also I apologize I was remiss before I'd like to introduce who's sitting with me at council table mr. Jeremy Kreisberg and miss Rachel Miller Ziegler who are also representing the house here I have several points in response to these arguments that have been made the first is your judge Elrod you asked a key question about I think you mentioned the the menus that would be struck down remember that that the kinds of provisions here that would be struck down if there's no severability are for example the the provision about when you can be denied or charged more insurance for pre-existing conditions the the provision about children can be kept on parents insurance until they're 26 these are all kinds of things that would be struck down if there is no severability and isn't the house the best entity to remedy I mean can't they put together sort of a cafeteria style package of in all of these individual features that are so attractive the ones that you're talking about and popular in various quarters can't they they could do this tomorrow couldn't they put them together and vote on them like that and pass all of the things and moot out the issue of severability here well I'm sure you're on a man when you said the house it's both the Congress and the president but it would start with the house and the reason I'm asking about the house is because that's who you represent start with us right and obviously the president would sign that right no obviously not and that's exactly the point and that's exactly the point because there's a political solution here that you 
various parties are asking this court to roll up its sleeves and get involved in. Isn't that exactly the point? That, isn't that why the Senate isn't here? No, Your Honor. Truthfully, truthfully. Truth, truthfully, no, Your Honor, that's not the point. Let me, I, I hear why, what you're saying. Why is it the, why does Congress want the Article III judiciary to become the taxidermist for every legislative uh, big game accomplishment that Congress achieves? Your Honor, Congress if, can fix this. It can fix this. It can, it can fix it after NFIB. Yes, Your Honor. That very same statement would be true in every severability case. And yet we know the Supreme Court has said to you, no, Congress doesn't have to fix this. You can fix it. And the Supreme Court has told you how to do it. Maintain everything you can that can stand on its own and be constitutional. The Supreme Court has ordered you to do that. Now, there is another option. Another option is the political process, but every single severability case is going to, the very same question come, could come up. And indeed, if I might add one more thing, their Supreme Court cases are legion that what Ms. my friend Mr. Hawkins was saying here is wrong. He said, um, you should draw importance from the fact that Congress has not passed a new statute. The Supreme Court has said over and over again, that is wrong. You cannot and should not draw any meaning from that because the members of Congress and the president might feel that the law is actually absolutely clear and therefore there is no need for further legislation right now. Because if this court does what the Supreme Court has instructed, you will keep in place the overwhelming percentage of the Affordable Care Act. But I take your point, Your Honor, and I, can, I take it that this can sometimes be frustrating, but remember, every severability case has that same issue. Um, the uh, attorney for, for Department of Justice, Mr. Flangey, and I have been friends for many, many years, but there's a, what he's arguing here, the DOJ position makes no sense. For example, there are, a batch of there are a batch of provisions in the Affordable Care Act that you can't divide up by state. For example, the, the Affordable Care Act provided for a system of, of biosimilar drug approvals. So the FDA would approve certain drugs that otherwise it might not have. The FDA is going to approve drugs for sale in Texas and Arizona, but not I'm sorry, the opposite, is going to approve drugs for California and other states, but not for sale in Arizona. What do you do with his argument that we're not to that point yet? That right now it's just a partial summary judgment, um, and so we're not to the point for the federal government to have to parse all that out. If well, we are to that point because the court issued an order, the court did not issue an injunction because the Justice Department said, no, please don't. We don't like injunctions in situations like this. And don't worry, we will apply the statute as your honor rules. That's a stand, I argued that for 40 years when I was with the Justice Department. That's our stand, the standard position there. You can't then turn around and say, oh, <laughs> so you didn't do an injunction and now we're going to say it's gotta go back to the district court. The problem is, and Texas, remember, is here. Do you want it to go back to the district court for the court to parse through all of those? Uh, Absolutely I mean, not. You may not want to, if, 
Worst case scenario, uh, <laughs> do you want to go back for the court to parse through all of those provisions you were just listing? No, Your Honor, because there's no way the district court could do that. And remember, the district court has already said the whole statute is unconstitutional, and Texas and the Justice Department have said that. That is absolutely wrong. That is so inconsistent with severability doctrine. Perhaps I and misunderstood. The district court can't do that, but I thought I understood you in response to my question to say that we are charged with, at least in terms of severability, uh, we are charged with that responsibility. I'm I, sorry, I think I misspoke. When I said the district court can't do that, I meant it can't do what the Justice Department wants you to do to say this provision will be applied in California but not Texas. There are whole parts of the Affordable Care Act that as a practical matter- so it's not administrable from the federal government. Absolutely cannot happen, but Your Honor. But California would like that. That California would like to go back to the district court and if them say that it's not, it doesn't apply in California, and that's what I was trying to say all along. I'll let Mr. Siegel speak for that, but I believe we are in total agreement that we think this court has an obligation to now, the, the district court has set it up and said, this all falls, and now you have the obligation to look at that and say, that's not what the law says. That's not what the Supreme Court has instructed. And so, no, we do not want this to go back to the district court. The district court has already ruled. Well, it has to go back to the district court if, 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 if it doesn't get, some, if some other thing doesn't happen in some appellate proceeding along the way, it would automatically have to go back to the district court, wouldn't but, it? But what I think what we believe you should do, this court should do, is you would say, the district court erred. Either you could say the plaintiff states have no standing, but the main thing that we think you would do is even if you would either uphold what Congress did or at a minimum, again, we say the law requires this, you would say the individual mandate is struck down, but that is so clearly severable because the text of the 2017 Act made clear the rest of the statute remains in effect throughout the year. No, because you would order that. That would only be partial summary judgment, and then you'd have to oh. go back to the district court and have all your wrap-up proceedings and all the things that would normally happen. But if not you were to win on that point, and that's, no. that's assuming argument. I don't think so. You're right. It's partial summary judgment, but it's partial because all the I believe all the rest of it depends on that. If you say, well, if you hold there's no standing, then the case ends. But if you hold that the rest of the, the statute is actually severable, I'm not sure what else the district court would have to do at that point, because that would be the judgment of this court. Now, I'm guessing that, that Texas or the Justice Department maybe would take that to the Supreme Court, but ultimately, uh, I don't believe this must go back to the, the district court, depending upon what you hold. If we held, hypothetically, that it was severable, we would say, district court, do your best severability in the first instance. Take out your blue pencil. No, you would do that. You why, would say. Why do we have to do that? In any other normal case, you would send it back to the district court in the first instance to make it its best stab at trying to implement the ruling that we made. That would be the normal proceeding in 100, mil, 100 cases that we have this month. But it's also normal for the court, the, the appellate court, to say, the law directs that all the rest of this statute, based on the, and again, I want to emphasize Judge Engelhardt, we're talking about the text, the 2017 statute, 
that all the rest is severable. That's what we think. If you are going to find there is standing and if you're going to strike down the individual mandate, that is what you would do. And again, we think you have to do that. And so there wouldn't be any reason to send that back to the district court to say, now go line by line and figure out which part is severable. You would have ruled that Supreme Court doctrine says, no, it has to be evident that Congress would not have wanted it under the 2017 Act. That clearly can't be done. What's evident? You need to wrap it up. I'm sorry. The last thing I wanted to say then is Mr. Hawkins was talking about the inseverability clause. There is no inseverability clause. He's just referring to findings in the original 2010 Act. There is no inseverability clause. And in 2017, Congress made clear that it was getting rid of the mandate and yet leaving the entire rest of the statute in place. Including the findings, right? The findings were applied to a different statute. The findings are still there, right? They have not been repealed. There's no need, there's no reason to repeal the findings. Facts, life has changed and it's a different statute. It's a 2017 statute that we're asking you to rule on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Thank you, Your Honors, and I'll try to be brief here. There are just three points I want to address on rebuttal. The first is about our state standing. So as I understood the federal government's supplemental brief, they didn't say that the remedy that they were proposing wouldn't harm us. They just said that we hadn't shown it. And with respect, we can't show that without knowing the scope of the remedy that they are proposing here. They say the remedy below should only apply to the provisions of the ACA that actually injure the plaintiffs. And they haven't explained how they would administer the Affordable Care Act in some parts of the country, but not others. The second point, picking up where Mr. Letter left off, the findings are not an inseverability clause. They expressed Congress's views about a different law, an ACA with an enforceable individual mandate that had a several hundred dollar tax and were adopted for a different purpose. They memorialized the 2010 Congress's views that an enforceable individual mandate was a proper exercise of the Commerce Clause. Now that may have also reflected the 2010 Congress's views that an enforceable individual mandate was an important and even perhaps necessary to the proper functioning of the individual markets. But in 2017, Congress drew a different conclusion. And we know that by looking to the text of the TCJA and what they did in that act was to make the minimum, excuse me, the individual mandate unenforceable by zeroing out that tax. So Congress had no need to repeal the severability, excuse me, to repeal the findings in order to express its intent on that point. It just had to act. My final point, Your Honor, the court can hold that the individual mandate is valid or you can hold that it's unenforceable. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter because that's exactly what Congress did in 2017. It made the mandate unenforceable. What is not fairly open to this court is for it to use that action as a basis for ordering what the 27 Congress repeatedly refused to do, and that's repeal the Affordable Care Act. California is not harmed if the court were to say the mandate is stricken. What is it? We are, if the only ruling that comes from this court is a declaration that the individual mandate is unconstitutional and unenforceable and it's severed from the rest of the Affordable Care Act, we are not harmed by that ruling at all. And if there are no further questions, Your Honor, we respectfully ask that you reverse the district court's judgment. Thank you very much.
Council, we appreciate your arguments in this very complex case. All appreciate your, all of your preparedness today. Thank you. The court will stand in recess until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.